The first is that no one knows you're working for Auntie. You hit him, you go. The second is it's a fair fight. The third is it's to the death. Who's the bunny? minute where we're used to dealing with subtleties as we watch mad max beyond thunderdome one minute at a time i'm rick and i'm julia and today we're talking about minute 15 which begins with auntie informing max that she needs him to kill someone and it ends with an interested max asking about his target one person that's always on target is our guest today molly balin from the cabin minute cast Hey, guys. Hey, Molly. Thank you for ending out the week with us. Yes, it's been delightful. Thank you. So we spent a lot of time yesterday talking about Auntie and her deep love for Bartertown. And as we kick off this minute, she's standing at the edge of the penthouse alongside Max. And she looks over at him and she tells him very seriously, I will do anything to protect it. Mm. And she's totally like Mama Bear in this situation. You can Mm -hmm. tell that there's something threatening her sovereignty. They have kind of a stare down here. Mm -hmm. First like 12 seconds in. And it's two alphas looking eye to eye. I love this moment. This this just really brief shot of her, you know, as you were talking at the, the top end of this of saying, you know, I'll do whatever to preserve this. And it's not as much like threatening to me. It's just an honest statement of fact. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't get this this villainous sensibility from her and she's really not i don't really even see her as a villain i don't know how do you guys see her because i i i understand that later on down the road she's going to be in an antagonist but i i don't really get that impression from her i really find her to be very likable i'm just curious what do you guys uh sense from her i see her much the same way you do for right now she is a co-character with max that is helping to move the story forward. Yes, later on, she is going to become the antagonist. She may do a few small villainous things, but doing a villainous thing doesn't necessarily make you a villain. Mm-hmm. One act doesn't make you the bad guy for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. So I think antagonist is the proper label for her, but not yet. Yeah, I think we're getting a glimpse of it, like you said. I really like the whole idea that Auntie is more or less a heroic figure, and she's achieved that status, and now we're getting into that Harvey Dent. She's living long enough to see herself become the villain because she's crafted this world, Mm. and I think it was was either George Miller or Terry Hayes who said this, but she crafts the world, and then she wants to hold so tightly onto it that she's not allowing it to evolve. Mm Mm-hmm. And so she shifts from that hero of mankind to a dictator of mankind. Mm -hmm. And I think this interaction that she's having with Max is really helping her formally shift from the heroic figure into the more shady figure. Mm. Because what she's going to propose is certainly not above board. (laughs) No, no, it's not. Certainly not. Which is interesting because this is somebody who, as we're going to see in coming minutes, is very concerned about the law. 
that they've created a structure of how to behave. I mean, it's called barter town, right? Mm -hmm. So deals are the very fabric of the civilization that she's created. And and we do see, I think it's maybe it's even in this minute, the towards the end, where there's like a, a, a no, it's later. There's like a spitting of the hand, and then like we're gonna we're gonna shake on it, kind of like there's this yeah, we're seeing eye to eye. You've got a deal here, so like as you guys were talking about, this is a deal maker. Deals are being made, and there has to be trust in that. There has to be integrity in that. There has to be faith in that. Because if you can't, that's a whole sentiment: honor amongst thieves. If you don't have any trust built into any type of deal, it just breaks down. Mm -hmm. So obviously, enough deals have been made with integrity that have allowed a fabric and a structure to continue and to build a civilization. So that's why this is quite interesting. That. Uh, you know, the collector's going to come in and be like, you know, there are subtleties here, <laughs> which is a really nice way of putting it. Yeah. I like how Auntie doesn't even beat around the bush. She says, I'll do anything to protect it. Today, it's necessary to kill a man. And then she asks Max what he thinks of it. And he immediately fires back with asking what she pays. And I love this idea that they don't reveal that they're in search of an assassin until after the audition, because I'm pretty sure that when the collector is sitting down there and he's looking at all the people that walked through. He's not foolish enough to basically openly solicit an assassin out in public with all the prying ears all around. <laughs> right. Like, he's smart <laughs> enough to know to let Auntie take care of this. And when Auntie says that this is basically a hit contract, Max doesn't immediately refuse, and I feel like the Max that we saw in the first movie would not be interested in hearing Auntie out, that mm -hmm. Max the lawman would have walked away at that point. But the Max that's been wandering around the wasteland for the last couple of decades not so quick to walk away mm -hmm. he's willing to hear her out and i've got to say auntie's offer to completely re-equip max with vehicles animals even fuel if he wants it i mean she says it's a generous offer and there's no arguing with that mm -mm. no not at all and he's lost quite a bit you know he's still kind of in in search of getting back what was his so I'm kind of curious how you guys interpreted this. Do you interpret him hearing her out as a result of, because I think that's, this is some of it, but of 20 years of, of running around the desert and, and kind of having some, you know, bending of values? Or do you think that he's got some other game and he's sort of like biting for time here? I think his end game here is to get his belongings back. I think he's more interested in getting his actual stuff back than getting replacement stuff back. Mm. And for him, it's almost the principle of the thing that my things were stolen from me. I'm here to get my things back. Mm. And Auntie Entity's offer to re-equip him is interesting because he's there because things were stolen from him. He shouldn't have to kill a man to get those things back. Mm -hmm. But he's willing to. Mm. Yeah, this is not the first time that Max has been put in a situation where his vehicle was taken from him and someone <laughs> yeah. basically dictates that he must perform a favor to get his own property returned to him. Right. Yeah, he has been through this before. <laughs> when it happened back in Road Warrior, sure, he was just finding a vehicle. But Max still had <laughs> the willingness to kill people that got in his way. When he was charging back through the raider camp with that rig, mm -hmm. he had his shotgun out and he was fully prepared to shoot anyone that got in his way. I mean, the ammunition failed him, but <laughs> the intent was there, even mm -hmm. if the capability didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think this is a, a gentle, above board way of asking for somebody to put out a hit. 
honestly. And you know, what I mean, I, it's not, it doesn't feel very sinister. It just feels like, look, this is a course of business. Mm-hmm. We have a situation. Can you help us out? You know? And so I feel like at least in the deal-making aspects of things, this, you know, as you're saying, there's, there's lies of omission here. And she does make a comment of like, look, you don't, you don't need to know all the particulars with this. <laughs> Because he doesn't, yeah. you know, it's just like, these are, these are the, just the basics, the basic conditions of, of, of why we want this, you know, this is who, and we're going to get more about like who this individual or individuals, so to speak, are, and, and get a little bit more about, you know, who that individual, those individuals are. But it's interesting to me that this isn't above board, that in the course of them creating a law of rule here, that this is something very much like civilization they're doing on the sly. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me also that there's a mechanism to deal with beefs, but they don't use it for this guy. So I'm kind of curious about what you guys think about that, of like why they have chosen to not just be open about their beef. I kind of see it as Auntie slipping from the honorable hero into the wasteland tyrant because she herself mm. established these rules, this way of operating things. And because she's in a situation where that rule is threatened, we're going to learn more about our target. I mean, everybody knows we're talking about Master Blaster, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Mm-hmm. But he represents a clear and present danger. Yes. Thank you. I was getting the stare down from Julia for that one. Oh. I hesitated before I said danger and she wouldn't let me not say it. But he's a threat to her sovereignty. She's in charge, even though the person keeping the lights on is Master Blaster. Mm -hmm. And so his own pride is threatening her pride and she can't go through normal methods to take him out because the minute she challenges Master to anything, he's going to name Blaster as his champion. And that's just, I don't know why Auntie can't turn around and instantly declare someone else as her champion, I don't know. I mean, when your entire rule of law is based around funny little rhymes and limericks, Mm -hmm. I feel like there are subsets and (laughs) subsections that get tossed by the wayside. Mm. She said she was nobody. She wasn't a law writer. Mm-hmm. She does make a, a curious comment to me of like, he's someone like family. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious if you guys were considering what a backstory might have been, what what maybe have, what connections they might have had in the past and why that might have, I mean, we kind, we kind of have a sense of like what he looks like now, and why that's causing some aggravation in future minutes. But I'm kind of curious with somebody who is, is referred to like family, what do you think the backstory was? I see two very generalized possibilities that... Auntie knew Master before the fall, perhaps worked with him in some capacity Mm. and knew of his abilities and he knew of her abilities. They thought, hey, if we work together, we can make something of ourselves. Or she met him afterwards and maybe she had already started Barter Town and he came along with a set of skills that she found useful and could make her Barter Town even better and so brought him in probably pretty early. Mm. So those are really kind of the two possibilities that I see. Either way, I think... They've been together for a very long time, Mm -hmm. upwards of 15 years. Yeah. Easy. Mm. I, at one point, thought up a situation where Auntie already has a following. She's already got Iron Bar. She's already got a collective of guards. She's got people that are following her around. And then that group come upon this location. 
where Barter Town is currently located. Because I feel like in this thing I cooked up in my head that Master and Blaster were already there. Mm -hmm. And that Auntie found them in this location and said basically, hey, I can get you raw materials to put your intellect into action and let's partner. So I like the idea of them knowing each other before the collapse, but I can also see a situation where they meet after the collapse. And I think Julie is absolutely right that whatever the situation is, they've definitely been working together at least 10, 15 years to be mm -hmm. that close and <laughs> to have so practiced of a way of needling the other person. Mm. Like Master knows exactly how to get on Auntie's nerves. He knows exactly how long it takes for her to react to something. And when Auntie says, this is no enemy, it's almost family, they have a lot of experience with each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Going back and forth, I'm sure. Yeah, and I find that to be a very revealing comment that she's even willing to say that to, to Max, that... This is this is something that's that's intimate and we know it's intimate. We have an intimate relationship. We have a close relationship, you know, and there isn't any there's no shame in this for her. It's a course of doing business, you know, both of them, actually. So, you know, obviously they've come to and this is another question I had. Uh, what do you guys think about the collector siding with her? Like, what do you think his reasons are? And I don't know if we have enough information to go on, but I'm kind of curious. He's obviously gotten into cahoots with her to, to say that this is going to be the correct course of action. Hmm. Power. Hmm. I see the collector and Iron Bar and perhaps maybe Dr. Dealgood being Auntie's counsel. Mm -hmm. mm. who she routinely turns to for advice and to execute her wishes upon Barter Town. And if the Collector can be her most trusted advisor, that gives him more power. Each one of these individuals represent a certain aspect of Barter Town. Like Master Blaster represents the fact that Barter Town has electricity. The Collector is, of course, the gatekeeper. He's the one that allows the goods to come in without letting <laughs> troublesome aspects <laughs> into the city. Dr. Dealgood facilitates the trade by being an auctioneer slash ringmaster and whatnot. And then, of course, Iron Bar is the lead guard. These are all branches that Auntie has access to. And I think the collector and Iron Bar and Dr. Dugat are able to recognize that if they have the option of throwing their support in behind the charismatic leader and figurehead of this civilization startup or the dude who keeps the lights running <laughs> they're gonna throw in with the person that has actual leadership capabilities mm. the master is has got some technical know-how and he's able to deliver a product but i don't know how good at governing he would necessarily be right so i think that's why she's able to hold on to this circle so to speak <laughs> One thing that we might have skipped over, I'd like how Max points out that Auntie has all of these guards, all of these people around her. He says, why me? You've got warriors, you've got weapons, just give the order. And that's what prompts the collector to say that they're dealing with subtleties. I think we're dealing with a very political situation. Mm -hmm. It would not reflect very well on Auntie if she had Iron Bar go down into Underworld and just take out Blaster. Mm -hmm. People would very much see that as a negative reflected back on her. It would be like if the president had the Secret Service kill a political rival. Right. 
and it was like obvious who it was that did it and who gave the order. Mm -hmm. Right. That's how wars get started. Mm. Exactly. World wars. <laughs> right. And the last thing Auntie wants is to have to fight a war in Barter Town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. On the opposite hand, you get an outsider to do it and then they disappear and it's like, oh. Yeah. If she can finagle a way that looks fair to the general populace, then the whole problem can just disappear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like we're going to learn slowly over time <laughs> that Auntie has put in a really effective way of eliminating people. It's just a matter of the right people getting in the right situation. So the collector walks up, mentions subtlety, Auntie Entity mentions family. Max is very critical of this idea. Oh, I see. Real civilized. Very judgy. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of that Mad Max sass coming in. And then Auntie is very quick to shut that down. She's explaining that her reasoning is not something that Max needs to get involved with. Mm -hmm. All she needs to know is whether or not he wants the deal. And of course, he doesn't necessarily come right out and say yes, but he nods and goes one of those mm-hmm type situations. And so the collector lays down some ground rules. and these. Rules are very important. <laughs> they should absolutely be remembered because what <laughs> happens eventually... None of the rules get followed. Exactly. <laughs> Every single rule gets broken. Rule number one, no one knows Max is working for Auntie. Above all else, Max is not allowed to reveal that he is on a mission from or associated with Auntie. <laughs> it is the first and most important part of this arrangement. Along with that is the stipulation that once the job is done, Max is not sticking around. He's not going to be given an apartment in Barter Town. He's not going to be able to settle down there. He is going to take his payment and leave. Because if he does this job and he succeeds and Auntie gives him a ton of stuff and he sticks around, guess who's now a new threat to Auntie? Mm -hmm. So it's very clear. Rule number one, no one knows he's working for Auntie, which he breaks that rule at the least opportune time. We'll get to that for sure. <laughs> the number two rule is that it's a fair fight. Max can't sneak around with cloak and dagger to do this job. It has to be out in the open with all parties well aware of what is happening. The publicity of this hit is very important. Hmm. You could argue. <laughs> yeah, it's not a fair fight. Right. Exactly. Which we'll definitely get into when we actually get to that part. But I'm going to say right here, right now, it was not a fair fight. Yeah. Max, Max cheated. <laughs> he takes a very big advantage in this situation. And like Julia said, we'll weigh whether or not it quantifies as quote unquote fair. <laughs> <laughs> but there'll be plenty of time for that later. The third rule, which is also broken, is that the fight is to the death, mm. not to the maim, <laughs> not to the surrender, not to the pain. This isn't going to be a Prince Humperdinck situation where Max can go all Wesley on the situation. <laughs> it is to the death. Because in order for this agreement to be fulfilled, Max must kill the target. Then, and only then, will the deal be concluded. And as far as Max is concerned, he's okay with these rules. At the onset, he is perfectly fine. He just asks, who's the bunny? <laughs> I mean, he's on board, but based on how he'll behave later in this movie, something tells me that he wasn't really listening as closely to the collector as he probably should have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it does make a lot of sense to me to have it to the death. And separate from, you know, the, the construct of law that they're operating in, it's also very, I think, an intelligent rule because should Max not prevail, 
you know, he's not going to squeal if he's dead. Exactly. It's a great context for it to happen in. And I feel like this is, you know, we talked a little bit about about this on Wednesday about civilization and how do you rebuild civilization. And, you know, this is part of Max getting judgy in this moment, too, is that she's built a rule of law that she now needs to get around. She's breaking her own law. You know, she's she's acting out of, of the integrity of the construct that she herself has actually built. So she's literally reenacting the problems of the previous civilization because in the previous civilization, even, you know, back in as far as history has been, you've got assassins and you've got people who become, you know, entrenched in impasses and and have to, to act shady. And this is absolutely shady. And they are fully aware of the optics of this. And which, which is also very interesting is that either by the power of this particular individual that they're going to put a hit on, or, you know, just the, the actual just perception of, of the rule of law of the land, they're concerned that they're going to look hatty to the rest of society. <laughs> yeah. Auntie's more or less painted herself into a corner with these laws that she's established. They work well with the populace, but where she wants to hold tightly to this world that she's created, she can't step out of that corner mm. because she would be stepping on the thing that she wants to survive. And so that's exactly like I said, they're getting shady with it. <laughs> I was thinking about world leaders and history and our current world leaders <laughs> and how often our own leaders have flouted the law in order to, at least in their eyes, maintain their own civilization or their own power. And to us right now, it's it's very prevalent in our own leadership, but this has been happening forever. This is a part of civilization. This is the seedy underbelly mm -hmm. <laughs> that there are always going to be those people who, in order to preserve the civilization or preserve their own power within that civilization are going to flout the law mm. that they created or that they are supposed to be upholding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm tempted to say, and we've survived just fine, but in the context of the movie, they didn't survive. No. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps that was one of the big reasons why they didn't survive. Mm -hmm. The opener to Road Warrior does tell us that there was a lot of political aspects to the demise of humankind. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a freak meteor or anything like that. It wasn't a natural disaster. We brought it on ourselves. Yeah. And I think that there's a comment that, that happens in Thunderdome um, that will, will be a little bit more poignant about uh, the reason why Thunderdome exists is to prevent you know, war or the eventuality of war. And so I find it very interesting that in this moment, what, you know, she, auntie, finds it to be completely imperative to remove this individual from power. But, you know, again, it's, it's under her justification of it to preserve civilization. But I don't believe that. Mm. And that's really what kind of brings everything down, really. Yeah, you could argue that auntie has effectively built something that can survive without her specifically. Mm -hmm. She's been able to establish a rule of law. And the nice thing about law is that it's written mm -hmm. and that it doesn't depend specifically on the charisma of one person. Mm, right. And that might be one thing that kind of scares her. The idea that she put all of this work into it. And yes, it's effective at this point and people are able to work and not have to worry about <laughs> being robbed mm. or murdered. 
or anything like that, because every time there's violence, they squash it in the Thunderdome and then it's just taken care of. But at the same time, just because everyone is able to meet on that equal footing means that in a way she's also on that equal footing Mm. and she looks at her situation and says, I'm not one of those rabble. I'm not one of the common. I am above that because Mm. I have created all of this. Yep, it's the hubris. And that's what brings the downfall is that the rule of law isn't enough. She didn't build something to last. It's more about her being built to last versus barter town itself it's a shame that she didn't build herself a mechanism to retire (laughs) (laughs) that when it was time maybe after four or eight years that her time was up and it was time for her to move on to do something else to Mm. serve a larger purpose to be an ambassador to the world to teach others how to do what she did it's too bad you know what she did she unintentionally created a dictatorial situation what she should have done and established a constitutional monarchy mm-hmm. where she is the queen of barter town yet the actual running and control of barter town is left to a council Mm -hmm. of people. So she still has that figurehead status. She still has that power and importance, but she's not weighed down with the humdrum everyday aspects of it. So she can be like, okay, I'm the queen. I'm going to hang out in my penthouse. Collector, you're the minister of admittance. And Dr. Dealgood, you're the minister of commerce. Take care of your situations. I'm just going to sit up here infallible. Mm, Yep. Yeah, you're right. It's just bad poli sci. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) She was nobody before the collapse. When the collapse happened, she probably should have become somebody and that somebody she should have become was a poli sci major. (laughs) Someone should have dug up a book, but you know, hey, you know. (laughs) (laughs) points for trying appreciate it yep yep (laughs) oh my god it's great when the apocalypse comes and everyone falls by the wayside there are going to be a lot of librarians that are going to be saying i told you so quite a lot Mm -hmm. be like hey read a book we told you to read books oh man yeah it's just it's books and good retirement strategy you know she needed the equivalent of a 401k and uh in this civilization's context Mm-hmm. I love it. It's hilarious. That's good. <laughs> that pretty much brings us to the end of this minute. The last thing we see is Iron Bar standing by. He's, I've got to say, not harboring a lot of resentment against Max for throwing him off of the penthouse platform. And I think that more has to do with Iron Bar's loyalty to Auntie mm-hmm. than any sort of personal experience or emotion that he has towards Max. Kind of a, I'm not hurt, you're not hurt, let's call the whole thing off type thing. Yeah, he cooled down pretty quick. Yeah, and his doll head remained very stable and intact. I'm very impressed. (laughs) Whatever harness situation he has going on there. Mm -hmm. Well done. (laughs) He's just standing by and he's watching everybody move around the penthouse. And we see the collector and auntie bringing Max over to this large pipe in the middle of the room. And so we're going to find out what that pipe is used for during next week's minutes as we head down under. Well, more down under than we technically already are, but that's beside the point. (laughs) Molly, is there anything you'd like to plug today? Yes, uh, I am 
a co-host to a fabulous little podcast called Cabin Minute Cast with Heidi Bennett. And you can find us at cabinminutecast.com where we take the cabin in the woods apart minute by minute. And probably by the time this airs, we should be pretty close to being done. So you can binge the whole thing and it'll be magic. So yeah, we're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Cabin Minute Cast. Nice. And of course, if people are interested in hearing more of us, we do have our weekend show called Anarchy Road. We are making our way through Hook five minutes at a time. This week on Anarchy Road, Peter gives a heartfelt speech at a banquet. Bright lights and wind effect cause a great disturbance in the force. And the children were screaming. The children were screaming. (laughs) So that'll be fun. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Mad Max Franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 15 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Over!